Hello and welcome to Spotlight with Sandhya. Our guest today is the unflappable legal luminary Aditya Sondhi. Aditya is a senior advocate who practices before the High Court of Karnataka and the Supreme Court of India. In the recent past, he served as the additional advocate general for Karnataka and he is also a visiting professor, a history buff and a writer. Let's welcome Aditya to Spotlight with Sandhya. Hi Aditya. Hi Sandhya, thank you for having me. Aditya, you were one of the earliest batch of students, I think, who graduated from the prestigious National Law School of India University here in Bangalore, which is considered a unique university in the country. And you are also a visiting faculty there. And so you are the right person to address this question. Do you think it's time to update or change the legal education in our country? And if so, what changes would you advocate? Yeah, that's a good question, uh, Sandhya. Two or three things. Um, one is, I think even before one gets to the law school, there ought to be some amount of legal awareness created at the senior school level. Because I've seen nowadays uh, doing the CLAT and being a lawyer seems to be a very high priority preference. And therefore, if the 11th, 12th standard syllabus can introduce basic curricula dealing with the law and the study of the law, I believe CBSE does it to some extent, that's a step forward. Within the legal curriculum itself, I think uh, there needs to be a greater emphasis on professional ethics and the practice of the law. This I'm saying selfishly because I am a practicing lawyer and I've felt that void in my career. I don't think uh, the practice of the law and the emphasis on professional ethics as an individual lawyer was treated with the gravitas that it should have been. The challenges of professional ethics one really faces when one has uh, his or her own pr practice. And especially if you're first generation, the process of setting up a practice itself throws up very serious, uh, I would say, existential challenges, ethical challenges. And if there can be a course that deals with counseling and advising young law students on the way forward in terms of setting up practices and the ethical challenges that come with them, I think that would be an important void to be filled. Because I think legal education, in a way, only prepares students for the short term, which is your immediate employability after the law school. But I don't think there's enough emphasis on that mid to long term step that one should take, which is to go out and set up and do your own thing. That apart, I think from the substantive side, there should be a greater emphasis on multidisciplinary study of the law. Uh, no discipline today is isolated. I mean, if you look at the response to COVID, um, it's hardly a medical response alone, right? Most best studies on COVID have come from a multidisciplinary approach involving mathematicians, statisticians, public health professionals, doctors, of course, research scientists, bureaucrats, and so on. And therefore, I think the law also needs to be able to get into those realms of public policy, of public law, and interface greater with other disciplines. These would be my, my immediate thoughts on your question. I'm curious to know, do you think there are a lot more women taking up law these days? And if so, what kind of law do you think attracts them? 
I mean, most certainly the number of women in the law has has increased right from the law school uh, stage up to practice. Larger number of lady advocates join the bar, which is a good sign, and do well for themselves and stick it out. Uh, some of my best colleagues have been uh, lady advocates, and it's good to see that they've stepped up to set up their own practices and and do well. I think corporate law has again seen a large number of women go into transactional corporate practice, go on to become partners and and do well. I still don't think the ratio is anywhere near what it should be. Justice Ruth Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court was asked recently on a BBC interview. She's she's the only woman on the U.S. uh, Supreme Court, I think, and I'm not sure. And she was asked, when do you think there will be enough women on the U.S. Supreme Court? And she said, well, when all judges on the U.S. Supreme Court are women. Because for the longest time, you've had all male benches, right? And nobody's batted an eyelid. It was a given that men belong at the highest echelons. And if that is to be corrected, then there's no point in symbolically saying that we've got two women judges or three women judges, etc. Of course, that's a start. But this cost correction, I think, has to take place over time. So yes, to answer your question, yes, there is an increasing number of women who are joining the profession, both uh, practice, academia, corporate law, and so on. But I think that still needs to transcend over time to a better looking statistic where more women are in positions of power, more women are uh, making their mark in the profession. Do you think one of the reasons why uh, women hesitate to appear before the bar or take up the practice of law even after they have graduated from law is because of the prevalence of sexual harassment either by their colleagues or by their senior partners or you know people who ought to be mentoring them? Do you think that could be one of the reasons why women hesitate? Uh, look, I don't think sexual harassment is uh, specific to the legal profession alone. You've seen sexual harassment allegations in academia, you've seen it in government, you've seen it in the private sector. So I don't think one could single out the legal profession to say that sexual harassment is rampant as compared to other streams. I don't think it's that. Uh, May I say then that it's probably more an apprehension of, say, workplace harassment rather than sexual harassment, meaning that does the system welcome women enough? Do colleagues and judges regard lady advocates, especially young lady advocates, in the same way as they do uh, men? I think that's the question to be asked. The question to be asked is, do clients treat women the same way? And if you read Justice Leela Seth's uh, autobiography, she was the first lady chief justice we had. And she says that many times an opinion that she prepared, which was perfectly good, had to be printed on the letterhead of a male advocate just for it to have credibility and acceptability amongst clients. So I think it's more that. I don't think it's so much sexual harassment. Of course, there have been instances of sexual harassment, allegations against seniors, against uh, even judges by interns. They were dealt with in some cases, in some cases not. But I do think that the mind block is more whether the acceptance within the profession is going to be fair. I get asked this a lot uh, when I do talks at different law colleges. And one of the questions that I find frequently being asked from young lady law students is, I really like criminal law, but is criminal law for for women? And the impression given to them by seniors who they intern with and so on is, look, stay away from criminal law. It's not for women. And I don't think that's fair. Of course, there is a challenge for lady advocates when they get into the criminal bar. 
there is a challenge when they set up their own practice but that's a challenge that's not unique to women even it's a gender neutral problem if you set up your own practice as a first generation lawyer you are going to face numerous challenges perhaps there is an additional glass ceiling if you're a woman and that's where i think this ties up to your first question that legal education also needs to address these doubts which linger there has to be an articulation with young law students to tell them that look of there are glass ceilings but you will be able to meet them and break them and that the bar is a place that you should seriously consider there's an increased awareness about gender insensitive judgments and uh, people are getting more vocal about it and registering their protest in public without referring to any particular case do you think this will impact the kind of judges that we can expect going forward or do you think it's too early to gauge look sandhya judgments are an outcome of the inputs that advocates provide to the court so let me not point fingers at the judgments themselves but begin to say first that gender sensitivity and sensitivity in matters involving rights of women has to be much greater and that includes the sensitivity at the bar that people like us who are practicing must have one secondly yes there is a social awareness and a social reaction because of the availability of social media where today somebody can respond to a judgment immediately now this has a has two sides to it the the bright side is yes of course where there are judgments that are seen to be brazenly insensitive to the rights of women or not just women but any sort of strata of society that deserves some special sensitivity then persons can certainly call it out create an awareness and that's happened from time to time but having said that i also find that a lot of reaction online is off the cuff often it's made without even reading judgments without even going into the nuances of judgments by nitpicking or cherry picking lines here and there and then tarnishing the entire uh, sort of system based on those judgments and i think that's where you know the common citizen if you will who responds to a judgment should be slightly more cautious i'm not saying you have to analyze a judgment legally as a layman and then respond to something that you think is wrong maybe that's too high a standard to set but at the very least read a judgment get the context and then react is i think a, a watchword i would like to put out generally across the board but yes i think uh, the fact that there is a greater awareness and not just an awareness but a response from society to judgments relating to these issues most certainly i think uh, would make the system more sensitive it would make judges more sensitive and uh, we're seeing that i don't think we're anywhere near an ideal world let me not delude ourselves but there is most certainly an awareness and that awareness can be seen even in little things in the manner in which uh, for example cases relating to sexual violence are tried where the rights of the victim are to be protected if a victim is a minor i think we've not reached an ideal state but there is no doubt a greater sensitivity amongst the the, the trial courts uh, between uh, amongst the prosecutors to a degree even amongst the defense counsel to be sensitive to the changes that have come about in the law and uh, yeah i think it may be too early to say how we're going to go but one can see the winds of change and i'm sure these winds of change will also uh, ensure that there is increased gender sensitization of the judiciary and the appointment of more women judges obviously with the qualification of more women lawyers and their rising seniority we can look forward to something like this happening moving on to more general terms of the law 
what is your stand regarding judicial activism and uh, judicial restraint where do you stand vis-a-vis these two options you know what brought this to my mind was when we happened to meet in kaban park recently and you know it's one of the few lung spaces that have survived and i think it's largely due to the very proactive judgments given by justice michael saldana I know it became a little controversial and I think there were some judgments of his that were actually put in abeyance later by a division bench of the court but that was not because of just the judgments on Kaban Park because I, I think it was more of a procedural thing but I would like to know more about what you have to say about judicial activism and uh, do you think that actually helps the public cause and what are the barriers to this what is your stand on this let me first answer it uh, generally judicial activism i think in a way has what really made our jurisprudence unique and when we speak of being you know constitutionalist and having a spirit of constitutionalism a lot of that comes from activist judgments that we've seen across uh, the spheres you mentioned the park and environmental issues and yes i think we've had a fairly rich history over the last 30 years or so of judgments that have by and large been pro environment pro citizen we've developed doctrines where you know public places and resources are to be treated as as commons and to be protected and where there is a breach they are to be compensated and a lot of that has happened not because of statutory law but it has happened really because of judgments of the courts and today you have the national green tribunal that has been set up to deal expressly with matters of ecology but a lot of that has come from judgments that the supreme court and the high courts have made over the last i would say 20 even plus 30 years or so justice kuldeep singh was uh, a torch bearer when it came to environmental judgments and therefore yes i think in in the sphere of ecology there's no doubt that the the courts have to go that extra yard because you're dealing with causes where a lot of folks are voiceless right um, ecological issues often have to do with wildlife they have to do with tribal rights with adivasis and a lot of these groups really have no voice unfortunately and therefore you need a court that is not just simply deciding cases based on the black and white letter of the law but is going that extra yard to develop the jurisprudence you know there was a judgment which said that rivers are living bodies and deserve to be protected it's been stayed in the supreme court but let's see where that goes So yes and yeah of course justice saldana uh, went out on a limb kaban park was one of his favorite issues of course his orders as you rightly pointed out were set aside because public interest matters were required to be placed before a division bench and he had made some orders sitting single and on that score a larger bench of the high court in fact reversed his orders but you know there have been judges uh, thereafter as well i think who have stepped out of the way to try and protect ecology our current uh, chief justice is an example of uh, such a judge and i mean there have been uh, numerous judges who have you know looked at the cause over the technicalities of a matter and a lot of that has led to protection of not just uh, you know the parks but even heritage there were matters that we had done relating to the master plan 
for Bangalore, zoning regulations, the commercialization of residential areas, all of which are matters that are close to our heart as old Bangaloreans and anybody who's really concerned with, you know, an aesthetic and order in the city in which they live. So yes, I think judicial activism, especially on the environmental side, I think is something we should welcome. If we go beyond that, it's going to be a long answer. I'll park it for now because there are many views on how far activism should go. Activism cannot become legislation. Activism cannot mean impinging on the powers of the legislature and so on. And that's where self-imposed judicial restraint also comes into the picture. But uh, generally, that's that's taking the, the topic generally. But specifically on the front of the ecology, I think uh, court should tend towards being more activist than less. All right. I think, like you rightly pointed out, uh, this topic can be parked for another discussion, perhaps, when there is something more relevant or something more pressing issue comes up. And talking about being an old Bangalorean, Aditya, I know that you are very fond of history and uh, you're also a writer. And more importantly, you're a chronicler of your old school, the Bishop Cotton Boys School. You've written two books on the school. And I here have one of them with me uh, right now. <laughs> I think Aditya has to th- is to be thanked for that. Right, yeah. And, uh, Your son, Aditya. I mean, yeah. Yes, my son, Aditya, who features in this book too, as an old Cotonian. What I want to know is, what sparked this interest in history? And especially, why did you feel this urge to chronicle the history of your school? Multiple things, uh, Sandhya. To begin with, I genuinely felt that uh, for an institution that was that old and with the history that it had, there wasn't enough public documentation of its history, and especially the history of its alumni. And that's where I thought I'd undertake explains the first book. But as time went along, and I also sort of got into my PhD, which relates to uh, civil-military relations in India and Pakistan, my interest specifically in uh, military history had been peaked. And I discovered that Cottons has a rich legacy in the armed forces uh, dating back to the, you know, the Boer Wars of 1895 and, and later, and especially in the two world wars. We've had a Victoria Cross and so on. And I thought that history needed to be documented tales of valor and tales of martyrdom and the relationship that a lot of these young officers had with their school, I think was something that was just lost somewhere. And uh, that really drove me to do a great deal more research in the second book that I did, which coincided with 150 years of cottons. And yeah, it was a labor of love who came together to set up this trust in the memory of General Timaya, who's an old Cotonian himself. And that kind of ties up with the military tradition that the school has had to try and recognize some of our alumni and the contribution they've made and to invite eminent speakers who are old boys to come and speak to an audience. But yeah, in a way, it links up to the question you asked. It's also, you know, the book, the lectures, they're not just school-facing. I think they're Bangalore-facing as well, to be honest. I should have said that in my previous answer, that there is a, a strong attachment that we have with the city. The city itself has changed radically over the years. Uh, What my dad tells me of Bangalore in the 60s, what I saw of it growing up in the 80s and 90s and what it is today are probably three different cities altogether. And that's where I think this connect with the past also brings alive what the city of Bangalore was 
and uh, its quaint cantonment kind of vibe, which is by and large missing today. But it was an interesting vibe, and I think it it deserves to be to be protected. I mean, it can be an anachronism beyond a point. It's not to say that's the only model for a city, but there were things uh, then that I believe were right. A certain sense of order. Um, a, a camaraderie that people had, right? A social camaraderie, and I'm sure you've you've lived through that. And, and, and therefore, I think uh, a lot of these efforts have also tried to link up with uh, trying to to regenerate that interest in in old Bangalore. That's a lovely uh, reason to write a book, and I think it's so important to hold on to the soul of our city. Thank you very much, Aditya. This has been a very interesting and enlightening conversation. And to our viewers, thank you for watching this episode of Spotlight with Sandhya, featuring Aditya Sondi. Please don't forget to like the Raintree Media channel on YouTube and comment and share our videos. This interview and others in this series are also available as podcasts on Spotify. I'll be back soon. Until then, bye for now.